And so the night in which Jesus would be betrayed, he took a cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And before he did that, he took a loaf of bread and said, this is my body that is going to be broken for you. And he looked at all those 12 apostles that were there, save one, for Judas had defected. But he said, this is my body, took a piece of loaf of bread, tore it, and it was really a picture that his body was about to be torn open for the sins of many. And so as we eat this today, let's eat remembering that Jesus has satisfied our greatest hunger, which is to be right with God. Let's eat. The Bible says that unless blood is shed, there is no ability for God to forgive sin. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are sinners. And Jesus came and was not a sinner. That's why the good news of the gospel is so good. He was not a sinner. And yet he died for sinners. And he sacrificed his sinless self for sinners like you and like I. And so he died so that you don't have to. He took the wrath of God so that you don't have to. His blood is symbolic that he died in the place of us, his people. So as we drink the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time that is not just a, a ritualistic thing that we do for your real presence is with us during this time. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for being Emmanuel. Thank you for the assurance that we are yours and we will always be yours and you will safely carry us home. Seal these truths in our mind as we sing to you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We'll just sing the doxology through one time together to close out this time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You may be seated.
Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, the book of Ruth is where we're going to be, the book of Ruth. And if we've had not had opportunity to meet just yet, my name is Jordan Johnson. I have the joy of serving as our lead pastor and one of our elders. And if this is your first time with us, we are so glad that you are here. Hope that you'll take that Connect card, fill it out. Um, let us get to know a little bit more about you so we can minister to you and pray for you and come alongside you. Don't forget to stop by the Welcome Center on the way out. We have a bag there that um, just lets us extend more, not only that we're glad you're here, but more about who we are. If I was visiting a new church, I would want to know what in the world do they believe and what do they think, and so we prepared a bag to help you understand a little bit more about who we are. But for the next few weeks during this time, we are going to be walking through the book of Ruth. And we're doing it through this season of Advent. And if you don't have a background in church or you're not familiar with Advent, Advent simply means arrival. It means arrival. And so the first 24 days on the church calendar is the season of Advent, where we think about the events and all that took place paving the way for the arrival or the Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we finished the book of Ruth, I'm sorry, the book of Nehemiah. We spent 13 weeks walking through that incredible book, and remember, when Nehemiah ends, 400 years goes by before Matthew chapter 1 and 2 happens, and thus, the narrative of the birth of Jesus comes into play. And so, God kept His promises, and namely His promise to send a Messiah, to send a Redeemer, to send someone that wasn't a sinner, someone that could come and live a perfect life and do everything that we as sinners could not do. And so that happened, and yet the people of God had to wait. And Advent is all about waiting. These 24 days of December are really designed for you to work on your waiting. How's your waiting? Are you good at waiting? When you're in line at Walmart and it takes forever, are you okay with that? When you're in traffic and it seems like they won't get out of the way, are you okay with that? Waiting. Cultivating a waiting spirit. I want to challenge you this month to intentionally make yourself wait and learn to be okay with it. Like build waiting in your schedule. So I know this is nuts to think about, but think about choosing the longest line at Walmart and doing it on purpose. Think about not rolling through stop signs like I know some of you do, but actually stop and wait. Waiting is a beautiful spiritual discipline that is often missed in our very hurried society. Waiting is something I don't like to do. Anybody else? I don't like to wait. I have to train myself to really be okay with waiting. And what you will see in learning to cultivate a spirit of waiting just in the lesser things of life, God will actually begin to cultivate in your heart a better ability to wait on His perfect timing in your life on things that you wish were different. 
And while you wait, you will learn from looking at the person in front of you who won't get out of the way that God actually wants to use that time to sanctify you, to make you a better waiter. And so Advent is about waiting. And this is why we're going to the book of Ruth, by the way, for the season of Advent. Because the book of Ruth is really a story about learning to wait on God. And it's really the failure of a family who did not wait well on God, and they suffered massive eternal consequences because they sought greener pasture rather than waiting on God's perfect time in the life of their family. And so, I've asked, how are you doing with waiting generally, stop signs, traffic, waiting on food, things of that nature, but how are you when it comes to waiting on God? I'm talking about the things in your life right now that you're asking Him to change, and He hasn't changed them yet. How are you doing waiting? Well, I think we really need to get in front of us, what does it mean to wait on God? glad you asked. What does it mean to wait on God? Here it is. You obey God in what you know He wants you to do, His revealed will. I know this is what He wants me to do. While you wait for Him, His secret will, you don't see it yet, you don't see what He's doing, for only what He can do. So, for instance, if you're in a job that you don't particularly like, anybody? Just kidding. And you're waiting And you said, God, would you please open a door for me to get a new job? Open a door for this. If if you're waiting well, it means that you are going to continue to be an exemplary employee. Because that's what he wants you to do. Because the Bible makes it very clear that we, even in our vocation, we don't work for people, we actually work for God. And everything that we do vocationally should be an act of spiritually giving God praise. And so while you wait for God to change your job circumstance, you continue to be faithful knowing what He wants you to do while you're waiting for Him to do what only He can do. That's what it means to wait on God. So let me ask you again, how you doing when it comes to waiting on God? The narrative of the book of Ruth is part of the larger narrative of the Old Testament. And here's the deal. We don't know even who wrote the book of Ruth. There's a lot of gray area here on the background of the narrative of Ruth. But this is what we do know. Despite our lack of background of the book of Ruth, this is a masterpiece when it comes to literary. If you go to most English departments at even a secular university, they will bring up Ruth because it is written in such a poetic and such a beautiful way that even those who don't love and fear God have to admit this linguistically, academically is written in such a way that is beautiful, that it is tight. It it is a love story. That's what the book of Ruth is. It is a love story between a man we're going to meet next week, Boaz, and his newly wife, Ruth. More than that, Ruth is a story about waiting on God to provide what only He can provide, and hoping in Him while you wait. Uh, The book of Ruth is really the fact that God is a promise maker, and He is also a promise keeper. Anybody know any promise breakers in your life? 
They told you one thing, but they do something different. Did you know God will never do that to you? He is always going to keep his promise. And the book of Ruth shows that. So this morning, chapter 1, the big idea of Ruth chapter 1 is this. God is gracious to broken and bitter people. God is gracious to broken and bitter people. So this morning, there are three roads this family is going to travel down, and I want to take you on the journey with them. Three roads in your outline. I want you to notice three roads. The first road they're going to walk down, this family, is the road to brokenness. That's the blank. The road to brokenness. Notice verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, what was that like? Well, if you, most of your Bibles, if you look, flip one page back to the book of, you guessed it, Judges, and notice the last verse of the book of Judges, this is what it was like when the book of Ruth was written. In those days, the days of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges, the book of Judges, very, very dark time in Israel's history. It was a spiritual wasteland of a season whereby God had largely been forgotten by his people. And so the book of Ruth takes place when Israel is in a wasteland spiritually, have forgotten their God, and are pursuing other things other than God. So notice back Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, got that, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Milan and Shilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we meet two primary characters here, Elimelech, Naomi. What we read here is Elimelech is from Bethlehem. Now, right in your margin, Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem was the Costco of Israel, all right? It's where all the food was. It was the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem was. And yet, the text says that there was no bread in the house of bread. So it'd be like going to Costco and the shelves are empty. There's nothing there. That's what's going on in Bethlehem. The house of bread has no bread. And so Elimelech and Naomi, this couple, along with their sons, are living in a famine. And they are at a crossroads in their life. Because they can either trust God or they can seek greener pasture. They can trust that God is God and He's going to provide and He's faithful or they can go somewhere and look for bread. Logically speaking, it makes sense, Elimelech, to like take the first bus or flight out of Bethlehem and go find some bread somewhere else. But what I want you to see is these opening verses are not just giving you a setting of the book historically, but these verses are getting you an a, 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 a introduction theologically of where the hearts of these people are. Because Elimelech, this, this should have been his posture toward God. The name Elimelech means God is my king. That's what Elimelech means. So when your name is God is my king, you ought to act like it, right? You should act like God is your king, he's in control, he's got this. 
And when there was a famine in a land, it doesn't, that doesn't just mean from a climate standpoint. It means they were under the judgment of God. The reason there was a famine is because God had, he was judging them by not sending rain, by letting their crops dry up because they forsook him. And so rather than Elimelech saying, God, we have sinned, God, heal our land, God, reignite in us a love and a passion for you, he doesn't do that. He follows after the heart of judges, doesn't he? Where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Elimelech is going to do here what he thinks is right in his own eyes. And by him leaving Bethlehem in the midst of a famine, he commits a great act of faithlessness. Now, I know you're like, well, Jordan, I mean, consider what he's going through. I have. I have. And I can see why it would be very easy to say, hey, Ember and Eden and Theo, we got to eat. So we're leaving. We're out of here. But that wouldn't be the right thing for me to do, especially if God is my king, is my name. I should sit back and I should say, God, you're going to provide. I have sinned. We have sinned. Would you restore this? But that's not what he does. And you've been at crossroads in your life like this, have you not? Where you are facing a hard circumstance in your life, and you can either stay put and trust that God is going to be God in your life, that He's going to exercise His lordship and His goodness in providing for you, or your other option is to go pursue your own will and try to figure out how to fix this mess that you're in. Well, Elimelech does just that. And Moab was not a place that he should have went. The whole country of Moab started from an incestuous relationship. I'll save you the details, but you can go read Genesis chapter 19. That's how Moab started. Moab is the country as well. When Israel is making its way to the promised land, the Moabites are like, nope, don't come through here. You're not welcome here. So if you were going to go somewhere, Moab spiritually would not be the place that you want to go. But here's the thing about Moab. It was a very green, lustrous place. Plenty to eat there. It's a good, good, good way to feed a family. A lot of opportunity there. So Elimelech skips over the unrighteousness of Moab and says, I got to feed my family and so I'm going. And by doing that, he chooses to not trust God. Now look what happens, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Oh boy. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was not Oprah, Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years in Moab, and Milan and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So they get there, Elimelech dies, and then Milan and Chilion, they die after living there 10 years. Furthermore, Ruth and Orpah have no children, they're barren. Now in the Old Testament, two of the great indicators that you were under God's judgment is death and barrenness. God is the one who opened up the womb. And when he would judge someone, he would close their womb where no children would be able to be born. And what's happening here is God is judging them. And the point of this is Elimelech, because he did not trust God, he has taken his family down the road of brokenness. Because they left God and sought their own way. So at the end of verse 5, we see this aging widow, Naomi. She's a foreign woman in a foreign land. And she's by herself with her two foreign daughter-in-laws. So Naomi is an immigrant. Think about Naomi as an immigrant. She's defenseless. 
If we apply this to our modern sensibilities, imagine an immigrant family moving to Parma, Ohio from Israel to escape the war that's going on there right now. And they come here, and on trying to get here, the husband dies, and the two son-in-laws die, and all that's left is this poor woman who is Israeli, does not know English, does not know anybody, can't fend for herself, and she comes to this land and got not, I mean, this is a hopeless, broken situation. And so Naomi does what makes sense in her head. She says, I'm going back home. I'm going back home to Israel. Well, because she had no other choice, she's probably going to die. If you didn't have a husband in this time, you couldn't provide for yourself. Someone was going to take your life because a husband would protect. And so verses 1 to 5 paint this very bleak story. Not only historically, but theologically. They're in a really hard place, but they're also under the judgment of God. They're doing what the Bible is supposed to make you do with story. When you read story in the Bible, this genre of story, what you should do is examine your own life, see how it mirrors this in some way, and learn from it. The book of Ruth addresses people like Elimelech and people like Naomi. We often, you and I, like to believe that if we could just get to there, wherever there is, then this would all work out. I believed that lie for a long time as a, as, a, as, a, as a single person and then as a married person and then as a, as a husband to Ember without kids. I was always looking for what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. And some of you are there right now. And what you need to understand is that you exhibit a lack, I exhibit a lack of fundamental trust in God by not trusting him right now and thinking if that happened, then I would trust him. Can I tell you something? If you don't trust him where he has you now, you will not trust him when you get there. Right now, God wants to teach you how to trust him right where you are. And I wonder thousands of years later how you right now are doubting the goodness of God in your life. Maybe you're unhappy in your work. And you thought, man, this was a great job when I first started. Man, it seemed so promising. Lots of people that I work with, my boss, she seemed nice. Everything seemed to be going well. Well, now you hate to go to bed on Sunday night because you've got to get up and go there. And it's hard. And you say, Lord, get me a new job. Maybe you're here and you are barren and you're waiting and, you, and you're you've tried to have children and you can't have children and you're broken over that or maybe you've had multiple miscarriages and it's very difficult to think about the fact that I want and we want a child so bad it seems like God has prepared us to have a child and yet we try and we try and we try no child and, and right now you want to bolt you, you want to run out you want to go chase and do this your way Maybe you're getting older in your life and there's so many things that you thought that you would accomplish in your life, but bro, you just got not like maybe less than 10 years left on the planet and you're not accomplishing those things. And then some of us look in the mirror and we see that old person in the mirror and we think, who is that? And there's a sense in your life where you're just not content. There's not glee in your life. There's not a sense of, I, I'm enjoying the place God has me. And so you may be here and you're 
just out of high school, you can't figure out your degree, and you're like, what am I going to do? I'm, my life's in front of me. And so there's a myriad of examples in this room where we could be just like Elimelech and just like Naomi. And the question is, friends, are we going to trust God? Are we going to wait well? Ruth teaches that when you are forced to wait on God, don't seek greener pasture outside of God. The story teaches us that if you do that, you are going to get on the road to brokenness. It's going to be really bad for you. And here's the thing. Some of you are going to have to go down the broken road, and God's going to have to put a lot of pain in your life for you to get it. Because you won't listen. You just continue to rebel. You continue to think, I can do this. I can do this. I'm telling you, one day it's going to hit, and you're going to be like, I wish I would have done this. So mark my words. December 3rd, 2023, don't chase greener pasture. Keep trusting God. Our 2024 is going to be a nightmare for you because God wants you to trust Him. He loves you. Second of all, if you do that, you're going to get bitter. This is the road to bitterness. You go from brokenness because you, you wanted to fix it. I thought I fixed it. It's bad now. And now you're bitter. Now you're upset. Notice verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, Naomi, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So Costco's, the shelves are starting to get some food on them. So she, verse 7, set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi, verse 8, said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, verse 9, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept. And by the way, this would be screeching crying. This, wouldn't be, this would be ugly crying on steroids. This would be like screaming to the high heavens. This is terrible. So don't miss that in the text. And they said to her, verse 10, no, 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 we will return with you to your people, the Israelite people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Don't go with me. I don't have sons in my womb that they can become your husbands. Again, a lot of security, financial stability. Would you, verse 13, therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. So Naomi says, Orpah, Ruth, go home. Go get a Moabite man. There's no Israelite man for you. You need security. You need financial stability. I'm an old woman. I can't. Are you going to wait? You think I'm going to get pregnant? You think I'm going to wait? And you're going to wait 20 years for my, my maybe sons? I can't control that. My maybe sons to grow up so then you can have a husband? No. Go home. Go home. Go back. While there's still time. You're still young. Still got things in front of you. Go back home. Well, you can sense there's bitterness festering in Naomi. She's getting bitter. She's angry. And she's fairly certain who is to blame for all of this. Notice, for it is exceedingly bitter, 13, for me, for your sake, that who the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, 
But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, initially, both daughter-in-law said, Nope, we're staying with you. But Orpah does really the logical thing and says, I'm going to go back and find me a husband, and I'm going to go in my Moabite ways. But it says here, Ruth clung to her. Now, when they go back, it causes quite a stir. Causes quite a stir for a Moabite woman to come into the camp of Israel. Notice verse 19. Skip down to 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The word Mara means bitter. Bitter. It's interesting, wouldn't it be interesting if you named your name after your besetting sin? Like if I went home one day to the kids and they were like, hey dad, I'm like, don't call me dad. Call me frustrated. <laughs> That's what's going on here. Don't call me by my name. Call, I'm bitter. I'm bitter. Call me by my name. I am bitter. It's something when you change your name, you're so bitter, you just go ahead and say, just call me bitter. And notice it says, uh, call me Mara, and then I, notice, I went away full. Now, most likely she means domestically. I went away, I had a husband, I had sons, I had daughter-in-law, our family, it was great. It seemed great. We left Bethlehem, all was well. I went away full, but notice, and the Lord brought me back empty. I'm sure that made Ruth feel really good. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Well, Naomi has gone back to her country physically, but her heart is not with God. She has physically gone back to her country, but her heart is not with God. So she names herself bitter. Now, what is bitterness? Now, if you're going to sleep, please just lock in here just for a second, because you, you, you really want to get this. What is bitterness? Bitterness is the feeling of anger or disappointment because you were treated unfairly. Or we could say, bitterness is resentment turned Godward. Bitterness is resentment turned Godward. Or, bitterness is anger plus helplessness equals bitterness. I'm angry about my circumstances, I feel helpless about them, and therefore I am bitter that God has put me in this situation. Or, as Tim Keller said, bitterness is believing God got it wrong. God got it wrong. And this is where Naomi is. She concludes God got it wrong. He got it wrong. And the Spirit of God poses a question to you and to me from this text, and it is this, how are you going to respond to the brokenness of the world and in your own life. Some of us have answered that question pretty clearly. Right now, if you were honest, you are bitter toward God. You are bitter because you feel like He put you in this circumstance. Now, it's one thing to lament the pain. Lamenting is a good thing. To lament is to say, God, I trust you, but how long is this going to take? How long is this going to take? I trust you, but how long? Bitterness is, God, I don't trust you because you got it wrong. That's the difference. Lamenting is, God, I trust you, but how long? Bitterness is, God, I don't trust you, you got it wrong. Dear friend, let me ask you, are you bitter? Well, let me, let me help you self-diagnose. Number one, do you love to be with God? Do you love to be with Him? Do you love to be in His presence? 
Do, do you love, like Psalm 1611 says, in God's presence is fullness of joy? Do you, it's hard to enjoy someone when you're bitter at them. And I'm not saying if you don't enjoy your time with God that you necessarily are bitter, but it could be a good indication that you are bitter. Because when life is hard, if the last place you want to go to is to God, then you need to do some heart check because underneath the surface could be some anger and bitterness toward Him. Second of all, do you love to submit to the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life? Do you love to submit to the Word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life? Psalm 19.7 says God's Word refreshes your soul. This doesn't mean that you're not reading your Bible every day. This doesn't mean you're not checking off, I did my Bible reading plan, well, did my devotions. But do you find joy and the Spirit of God convicting you and coming back to the Lord so that your fellowship with Him remains sweet and intact? Hebrews 12 talks about the root of bitterness. Friend, don't gloss over the fact that you don't enjoy being with God. Don't, in, don't gloss over the fact that you don't look forward to your quote-unquote quiet time. And, and certainly don't look over or gloss over the fact that you don't get excited that God would love you enough to convict you of sin so that you can make it right, so that you and Him could be close. Don't despise that. And if that is not there, underneath the surface could be a root of bitterness, and you need to get underneath your heart and get a hold of it and pull it out, because if you don't pull it out by the root, it will only crop up into more bitterness and more bitterness and more bitterness. So how do you do that? How do you pull up the root? Well, I think Ruth helps us out. Notice the road to God's benevolence. See, the broken road is connected to the bitter road, but if you'll let God work in your life, it actually will connect to the road to benevolence. Notice 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, this is one of the most, I would just say, beautifully intoxicating lines of Scripture. Notice, don't urge me to leave or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Notice Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. And notice the phrase, like it's like a crescendo here. Um, I'm going where you go. Your, your people, my people. Your God, my God. And then verse 17, where you die, put my dead bones next to them. She commits soul and body to Naomi. This is incredible. Then Ruth, this is a Moabite woman, y'all. This is a Moabite woman. And she says, your God, Yahweh. She uses the covenant name of God. The Lord, your God, is going to be my God. This is, this is key. One of the most important ideas in the Bible is here, how I want to, how I want to close this. The idea is in a Hebrew word, chesed, H-E-S-E-D, write it down, chesed. Chesed means the loyal love of God, it means His covenant faithfulness, 
And this is what Ruth is practicing here. She is practicing hased in Naomi's life. She has a very bitter mother-in-law. Anybody got a bitter mother-in-law? Don't answer that. But her bitter mother-in-law, and she is like, I'm not going anywhere. And that's what Hased is. Hased is, even when you don't want me, even when you're not faithful to me, even when you're not keeping your end of the bargain, I am clinging to you. I am with you. Naomi is doing this because, Ruth is doing this because she loves Naomi. Well, what I want you to see here is that Ruth is demonstrating this hesed in Naomi's life, but it really is a foreshadowing, is it not? Of the love of Jesus for you, for me, for us, his people. What is Advent? Well, it's about the arrival of Jesus. This baby, friends, who will be born in Bethlehem will grow up and will save his people from their sin. And when we look to Jesus, we have this promise. This is what Jesus says to us. Where you go, I'm going. Where you lodge, I'm lodging. Your people, those are my people. The very ones that I died for, Jesus says, and I'm going to be your God. See, what I want you to see here, and you're going to see in the narrative, is the way that Ruth loves Naomi will change her over time. If you'll let Jesus love you over time, he'll change your broken, bitter heart. But you got to let him love you. you got to let him cling to you. You can't tell him, get away from me. Run away from me. I'm upset. I'm bitter. I'm broken. But here's the good thing about hased, is even when you do that, what Jesus says is, if you leave me, I'm not going to leave you. I always joke with Ember and say, if you leave me, I'm going with you. <laughs> and this is the idea of hased. Jesus says, you're not faithful to me. I'm going to be faithful to you. You don't keep the covenant of walking the way that I want you to walk. I am keeping it for you. I'm walking with you. You break your vows, I'm not going to break my vows. Again, this sounds too good to be true. And for some of the, the Pharisees among us, you say, well, that sounds too good to be true. That's going to create a bunch of people who don't follow and love God by just making them trample that. No, it's not. What it's doing is it's putting your heart where it needs to be when it comes to obedience to God, because it makes you look at Jesus and his covenant love and faithfulness to you, and what it does is it motivates you to say, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to follow. I don't want to just like, okay, good, I can live how I want to because Jesus is faithful to me. That would be ignorant and would be maybe evidence that you don't even know him. Jesus, let me remind you, is Ruth's great, 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 grandson. Jesus is Ruth's great to the 17th power grandson. Dear Christian friends, Jesus was faithful to come for us. And this is what Advent is all about, that we wait and we trust and we let Jesus love us, even in our bitter job situation, our bitter marriage situation, our bitter postpartum depression. I thought it wasn't going to be like this. It's hard. I, I, he still loves you. And he's holding you, but let him love you. And he will change you. He will begin to melt your heart. This is the message of Advent. This is the message of Ruth. Now this week I read a Christmas card that I've never read one like this before. And I want to read it to you because I think it explains the point pretty clearly. This is a Christmas card um, on the screen from the Mayfields. You don't know the Mayfields and I don't either. Merry Christmas. It says, this was our hardest year ever. 
And honestly, we still have not recovered. We left our mission organization, and I experienced a traumatic pregnancy and nearly died. After birth, our premature baby had to be hospitalized for six weeks. Then we moved across the country and said goodbye to an amazing church family and friends, along with putting our daughter through a lot emotionally and leaving her best friend. Next. Shortly after we arrived, our van broke down for good. And our next-door neighbor drove his car into our daughter's bedroom. My anxiety got so bad that my body decided to get depressed to fix things. We became very isolated, partly on purpose. It was the year of hard things. But perhaps the most significant thing is that Jesus is no longer an abstract person, a walking theology, or a list of do's and don'ts for me. Rather, this was the year I realized that Jesus is my battered, bruised, elder brother and dearest friend on earth. And I see now that he never once left my side. Every year I think, now this year I finally get Advent. We don't have the energy to pretend we're okay because we're not, but the light of Jesus remains. So we take God's mercies as he gives them, and we know one day all things will be made new. And then it's signed, Merry Christmas from the Mayfields. So I, I, I don't know where you're at. And I don't know the bitter providence of God in, in your life. But I don't have to know because my prayer is, is that you would trust Jesus during this season to wait well, let him love you well, and know that even in a hard year, he wants to use this hardship so that he will become realer to you than he is. As long as things are going the way that you want them to go, you don't have to trust him at a deep level. But when he turns the heat up, it forces you to trust him. Friends, let him love you. Let him change you in your brokenness, in your bitterness, as you experience his benevolence. Lord Jesus, thank you that there are some in our midst that are like the Mayfields, if they wrote a Christmas card like that and were as honest as the Mayfields, they would explain the bitter providence of your hand in 2023. And thank you that you use seasons like Advent to help us learn how to wait better on you. God, I, I pray that by your grace, you would comfort your people in this season for some of them that is very, very difficult. And all of us, Lord, can see ourselves in the life of Elimelech where he would, rather than trust you, he would bolt and go seek to fix this on his own. Oh, Lord, would you protect us from ourselves in that way? Would you seal these truths in our mind? Would you help those in this room who don't know you, that they would realize that you've brought them here, you have them in this season of life that they wish were different, and you've got them to a place where they've hit rock bottom, and I pray today they would realize you're the rock at the bottom and they could look to you by faith, could rest in you, could find joy in you. Lord, help us let you love us this year. To love us. So that we could experience more of the greatness of who you are. Thank you for your hesed, covenant faithfulness that you don't, when things get hard, you don't run away from us. 
things get hard, you actually run to us and say, child, come here. So Lord, help us say yes to that invitation and be changed from the inside out to the way that we allow you to hased us. We pray in Jesus' name. As we stand to our feet, could we respond in song?